Welcome to the podcast. We do recover with Jared Miller, your host. And I'm Dr. Terry Sellers, your co-host. This is a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, about recovery. We want to talk about what successful recovery can look like. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. You're listening to episode 17 of We Do Recover. I'm your host, Jared Miller. Today, I'm joined via the web by your co-host and our medical expert, Dr. Terry Sellers. Good morning, everybody. We also have in the studio the producer that makes this whole thing possible, Sean Denovan. Hi, guys. And our featured guest for you. She is a clinical mental health counselor. Her name is Shalee Webb. Shalee. Shalee Webb. That's like socially. Yeah. Ah, it's so- I'm struggling with that one. It's okay. It's like socially. Thank you for the help. Shalee Webb. Shalee. <laughs> oh, blooper. Cut. Let's go again. Just kidding. Okay, this podcast is recorded in sunny St. George, Utah. Episode 17, part one is brought to you by Steps Recovery Centers, where addiction ends and healing begins. If you or a loved one needs help, give them a call, 801-800-8142. Let's do some check-ins. Dr. Sellers, what's going on? What's good, buddy? Um, my BYU Cougars are still undefeated, 8-0. What, what? They, they beat the mighty Boise State Broncos this last week, so that's awesome. Sadly, the University of Utah Utes had to cancel their game due to COVID. Rough. So I'm a giant college football fan. I love watching it. I definitely want Utah to get to start playing, but they're struggling. They are. I saw that their game was supposed to be tonight, but it got pushed back to tomorrow, actually, against UCLA. Yeah. There's still some question whether that one might be canceled. So we'll hope yeah. not. Yeah. Shalee. That's all I got. I got college football. I got nothing else in my life except work. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for checking in. Shalee, let's get you let's get you in the mix here. What's new and good in your world? Um, lots of things. I have a I have lots of kids and I have a daughter that's gonna have another baby, so it'll make seventeen grandkids for me. So I'm super, oh, super excited. Nice. Yeah. Life is good. Recovery's great. Working is wonderful. Love it. What are you going to say? Did you have a question, Dr. Sellers? No, I just wondered if she realized there, I don't know uh, anything about you, Shalee, sorry, but <laughs> there was once a commandment to populate and replenish the earth, and but it wasn't meant just for you. You don't have to do it all by yourself. <laughs> right. That's why I have a his, mine, and our family. I just take them as they come. There you go. <laughs> I like that attitude. I like that attitude. Sean Denvin, you're over there listening into stuff and check. What's what's new with you? Well, I was just checking to make sure that the Facebook Live was working. It is, so we are live. New and good. I finished the podcast room again. Yeah, you've seen the construction the last couple of weeks, so I just ran some wires and fixed some stuff. So it's a little more tidy, a little more nice. That's new and good for me. I saw a pretty serious hot glue gun in the other room. Looks like you've moved on to room number two. <laughs> yeah, room number two. That's the next project. <laughs> awesome. It's good checking in with you. Well, today on uh, episode 17 of We Do Recover, we're gonna. Hey, Jared. Yeah. What's new and good with you? Oh, man. Thank you for asking. New and good with me. Yeah. You know, just just trying to figure out what I'm doing for the holidays. You know, me and Mandy are northern Utah people. We're transplants, as they call it. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what we're doing for Thanksgiving. And, and uh, yeah, just, you know, my, my, my Sudsy is kind of winding down. And so... Sweet. So I'm, I'm working on that. It's nice. Like I used to have just tons of assignments. And so now it's starting to become a little bit more manageable. I got a big term paper that's due this week. 
Do you want to turn in an ethics paper for me, Sellers? Oh, man, ethics is my worst field. Listen, <laughs> Professor I'm Nance. I'm the most unethical person you know. Come on. Professor Nance, if you're listening, I was just kidding. Haha. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So episode yeah. 17 of We Recover, we're going to do something a little different. We got Shalee here. Shalee here. I'm going to struggle with that one. Don't and she's going to help us discuss, like I mentioned, uh, she's a clinical mental health counselor. She works at Steps Recovery Centers. And she's going to help address us some different theories on addiction. So that's what we're going to dive into. And thank you so much for coming, by the way. Like, I, man, Steps is good to us. You guys, yeah. you guys got an awesome team there. And thank we you do for, have an amazing team. Yeah. Thank you for, for making yourself available to, to come be on, to grace us with your presence. Yeah. yeah. Very nice of you, by the way. At the last minute, too. So the first one I want to jump into is what we call the moral theory. And I have to say, so I'm just going to kind of pitch these out to you guys and let you and Dr. Sellers discuss them, and I'll give my little sudsy study opinion when it applies. <laughs> but <laughs> the moral theory, it's based in, it's tracked all the way back. I'm going to do this like on a time scale. It's the oldest, it's the most historical theory out there. It comes from the 18th and 19th century. And in fact, during like the, the over in Europe, gin was super cheap mm-hmm. and it, a lot of people would go to the pubs and go to the bars after work and stuff during, I believe it was the industrial period or mm-hmm. where they're kind of ramping up and, and that's where it was founded. That's where the birth of it really happened. So fast forward, let's get into kind of in the United States, civil war happened and the temperance movement began. And in this temperance movement, the attitude towards it basically came out of it is a person that couldn't hold their drink or couldn't stop drinking was morally corrupt. They, they didn't have, they were basically a bad person. They had something wrong with them. So a couple other bullet points I got here on my research is in the, in the moral theory, addiction is a result of moral weakness. Uh, recovery is achieved through the use of willpower and discipline. And then the last bullet point I have is treatment f- based on this theory is based out of punishment. It's amazing how we still have been dealing with that even today. There's a lot of treatment facilities. There's a lot of people that believe that it is a moral, um, ethical dilemma. And the, the problem with that is we, we are so shamed about our addiction anyway that it's hard to do anything to recover when you have somebody telling you that you are the problem, that the shame that you're feeling is correct and right, that you need to feel shame about it. And it, the moral the moral dilemma for all of our um, clients, everybody that struggles with addiction is so prevalent. And it's something that um, in my field, I get to deal with on a daily basis and help them um, kind of break that apart, break that shame pod that they have and look at things in a different way. Because morally, we now know that um, your frontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that actually regulates that, shuts completely off. So it doesn't even have to do with our moral ethics. So it's pretty amazing if you if you know the foundation of what it is and can actually help somebody see that it's not really even part of what they should be looking at as they go into recovery. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and, and one of the common things that I hear people say is, oh, 
they chose their kids over drugs or alcohol or they they threw their job away you know like and that is all based in the moral theory what are some common things that you found dr sellers well, uh, first of all, I want to point out that that was a great comment. Thanks. I, that's why you're here, because you're apparently brilliant. Um, but I think that uh, we're going to get into the other theories a little bit later, but I think that we have disproven that model completely. Yes. Uh, but she's right. Parts of it still linger. I remember when I was a, a clinical director at a facility and um, – the owner of that facility decided that when somebody that came to us who was dressing immodestly, that he would force that person to wear like a uh, mm. like a peasant dress or like a an old, <laughs> and it's just that's all based in shame, yeah. right? I mean that's all shame based stuff. We don't do shame based anymore because, and th this is your the other brilliant part of your point is. The um, disease model, which we're going to get to, and I'm not trying to get there yet, but the disease model has shown us that when your midbrain takes over, it completely shuts your frontal cortex down. And frontal cortex is where we have our morals and our values and our, uh, frankly, just our decision making. And our midbrain, all we have there is stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. And if your midbrain has taken over, your morals are – it's not that they're not there. They're just not accessible to you. Like they're still in there. You just can't access them when you're – access them when your midbrain thinks that you're going to die, frankly. And so, I mean, that's – that's. I'm sorry to bring that second theory in already, but that's kind of uh, – the addiction model has proven that moral theory to be just completely off base. Yeah, I completely agree with both of what you guys have said. And thinking of the moral theory, last week we had, uh, we, we discussed Happy Valley. And that movie was based on kind of the, the to shock the, the people of the state of Utah, Provo County, obviously in particular, about what is happening, what was really happening. And even that show was like years old. And so I think that the farther we can get away from the moral kind of the shaming. And I think the moral theory still to the, has a place today, but I think the further we can get away from that, the healthier people will become because then they don't have to feel that shame. They don't have to feel that guilt. I also shared last week that my life changed when I talked to, you know, some people like Dr. Sellers that said, Hey, you know, cause I was before I would share with people I felt comfortable with. And now it's like, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll share my story with anybody. It's right. not, I don't want to say I'm proud of it, but I, pr I, I am proud and not ashamed to disclose where I was and where I am now. Well, the important part to remember is that we want, we want people to see that the shame is there, but we also want to pull that shame away from themselves and get them to look that, you know, shame is who I am. Guilt is what I've done. And so, so if good. you can look at that, you can kind of open a whole new dialogue for that person and get them to, to actually forgive themselves. And forgiveness is such a key to recovery. We've got to allow them to see that what they've done is not who they are. And that moral theory didn't allow for that. So it's really amazing to have the ability to do something different today. Yeah. And I think too, a lot of times I get confused the moral theory with the people that I've harmed. Right. So for a long time, I was kind of in the, the victim pool as we call it. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought, well, everybody's just judge me. Everybody, you know, they think that I'm this terrible person. I, I would fair to say that most people that have been affected, most families have been affected by the, the disease of addiction or had a family member that has had addiction. It might not be that they're judging you morally, right? Because I think everybody knows that their loved ones are good people. It's just the things that we've maybe done to wrong them that, that sometimes they hold on to. And, and that's why, you know, we, we try to seek out forgiveness and make right. amends. So let me ask you this, Dr. Sellers, we've kind of, t you've beautifully said how the disease theory disproves the moral theory. There is, do you feel like there still is some truth or a place for moral theory? In other words, if I'm an alcoholic in recovery, is it morally right for me to go to the bar and hang out at the bar? Well, I, 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 I don't know if I can comment on that. Like morally right. I don't know the answer to that. Is it a, is it a bright idea? No, it's not a bright idea. I mean, I decided that a long time ago is when I'm rational and I'm logical in my thinking, not that I ever drank very much, but I didn't drink at all. Let's be honest. Uh, morphine was my drug of choice, but I decided long ago, I just have no business in a bar, right? There's nothing there f that, that appeals to me if I'm not going to be partaking of the thing that the bar is there for. So yeah, I don't know if, I don't know about the morality of it, but it, I can tell you it's not very logical and, and recovery needs to be logical. Maybe it touches on the, the, one of the points we're going to get to the social cultural right? Sociocultural. Sure. Sure. What, what about you? So Shalai, would, would you, where would you say mo the moral theory still has some standing ground if we separate the shame? So if we separate the shame, we still, we still got to look at the fact that the, the frontal cortex is shut down. And so our ability to make rational, reasonable decisions and choices are not the greatest, especially in the first 100 days of recovery. We, st are, are, we know that our frontal cortex doesn't even come back online until start coming back online until day 100. You know, so I don't think we can really look so much at the moral part of that because we're not able to, to focus and let them have the ability to feel what that moral value is for them yet. So further in, I think we look at what their values are and help them rediscover a way to make them part of their life. But the moral moral part of the theory, I think we've got to get rid of um, for people to really be able to recover long term. I love that you say that too, because we had a guest come on, uh, Miss Carrillo, and she shared how she she said, I think prior to my addiction, I, I didn't have any values. I didn't have a strong moral compass. As I, I'm ad-libbing, obviously, because I'm not sure exactly what she said, but she made a great point. She learned that in recovery. Correct. So, yeah, I love that you shared that. It reminded me of that. All right, are we ready to move on? Absolutely. Well, I, I, let me have one more comment about guilt and shame, right? They, they have developed, guilt and shame have developed in human development as motivators. I mean, they are, guilt and shame is there because the, uh, we don't, want to keep doing that like our brain doesn't want us to keep doing the things that are causing guilt and shame so when used as a positive motivator guilt and shame isn't always terrible and wrong it's just that as a mo as a mode of treatment trying to shame somebody who you can't shame them as bad as they shame themselves so uh, it's it's not helpful in treatment but guilt and shame can be helpful in motivating change for sure 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. All right. So we're going to talk about the disease theory next. So in 1935, a couple guys by the name of Bill and Dr. Bob put together an organization known as Alcoholics Anonymous. And they really shifted away from moral theory into more of alcoholics suffer from an illness. And they kind of trailed along with uh, basically the, the thought of the higher power, right? You, you can get healing through a higher power. So some of the other bullet points I got on that is addiction is caused by a physiological defect uh, that makes people unable to tolerate drugs or alcohol. Uh, The disease of addiction is incurable, progressive, and fatal if not left left untreated. And then the last one, just kind of what you guys have talked about, the um, limbotic system releases dopamine, overpowering or hijacking the frontal cortex, which is our logical thinking part of our brain. So, Dr. Sellers, I'm going to start off with you because you, you, you've got the medical experience on this disease theory. Um, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, so, for sure, if you're not, if you don't know who Bill W. and Dr. Bob are, you're probably not involved in AA because they started AA. And, you know, one was a physician and he was treating a patient who... Uh, came into the hospital because he couldn't stop drinking alcohol. And they sort of, through a series of meetings, started developing this fellowship and then came up with everything that eventually became AA, right? Um, this this theory makes a lot more sense to most people uh, just because it's, uh, you know, they don't have to feel like they're terrible moral individuals. And um, I don't know, I don't, I don't have much... Uh, Shelly, give us something on that, your thoughts on. So we use the, the medical model now a lot. In the last 10, 11, 12 years, we've learned a lot about the brain. The brain is very fascinating. I love learning about the brain. And I do a lot of education about the brain and how it works with addiction. With the medical model, we can actually, we actually now know that it comes from the midbrain, which is part of the limbic system or the reptilian brain. We also know that a lot of addicts um, suffer from trauma, and the trauma response center is also part of the limbic system. And so we know that they're highly connected. And so when we, when we can help break that down and help people understand that addiction actually is a disease, just like coronary disease, just like cancer, just like um, diabetes, none of those things can be cured. But we can maintain them by a series of, of things. And so we can do the same thing with addiction. And so the medical model makes a lot of sense. And, and it's really fascinating when you teach somebody about the brain and how addiction works within that brain. They, they kind of open up and go, wow, now I can understand why I was doing some of the things that I'm doing. So the midbrain is actually really responsible for three things when, and that's what it was made for, you know, food, shelter, and procreation, unless you were lucky enough, like you and I, to, um, draw the addict card. (laughs) And, and I do believe that that's, that we were lucky enough to do that, um, when that happens and you actually use a substance for the very first time, those three things that the midbrain is responsible for co- 
they kind of take a back seat or don't don't really exist anymore um, because your brain has now registered that substance as an absolute need, a necessity. And so when people can understand that, they even their families can understand that. They can go, wow, that makes so much more sense why it is a disease and it is something that we need to look at as a medical thing. And when we can when we can share that with our society and help them understand that addicts aren't bad people, that they actually do have a disease and that it is treatable, but we need to help them manage it just like we do some of the other diseases. It it's it's uplifting for everybody that's involved with addiction. I love that you shared that and it made me think of too, with understanding there's sympathy and then there's empathy right? Sympathy is like, poor you, or, well, at least it's not this, or versus empathy is a place of understanding and an openness to the possibility of being able to relate with that person. Right. And I love that people have come on and and shared like, uh, you know, I'm addicted to food. Um, Last week, our, our guests mentioned that, and it made me laugh because I believe that anybody who has a family member in addiction or anybody who, you know, like for a lot of people say some of the best therapists are people that have experienced it themselves. And that's true. However, I don't, I wouldn't disagree with somebody who has never experienced addiction. Couldn't be a great therapist because on to some degree they can relate, they can find empathy and they can relate. Right. I also have said before, thank goodness that breathing is subconscious because it might overpower that <laughs> like yeah, I absolutely. well let's so let's um, yeah let me summarize one one more thing that Shalee said and that is she said it's a uh, midbrain's responsible for three things well it's all three of those things are under the one responsibility of the midbrain and that is to keep you alive right and that's its primary like that's it that's what the midbrain does is keeps us alive it um, does so by making us hungry so we eat it does so by um you know if we put our hand on the stove we immediately remove it without having to go to the frontal cortex that happens in the midbrain all those things that keep us alive including breathing and heart rate those are all things that happen in the midbrain and the this this sort of medical model states that the dopamine released by the midbrain becomes so important to our midbrain that it overshadows all of those other survival behaviors. Mm-hmm. So you see you see people with substance use disorder that are ignoring their health and ignoring their families and ignoring their freedom and ignore you know all of those things that are really important they ignore because the midbrain perceives that without that drug and alcohol you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And it's a misperception, but that's what the midbrain perceives. And keeping you alive is its job. It's going to shut everything else down just to keep you alive. And it's also the pleasure center. So that's why why it goes back to it time and time again, because it does. It it has all of those pieces that are so vital to our existence. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And real quick to take us out, Dr. Sellers, I've, I've heard one of your lectures and I've heard you talk about the pleasure system. And we'll call it intimacy for the sake of being appropriate on this podcast, but sure. compare intimacy, right? Everybody can relate. Most adults can relate with that to the different dopamine releases with different chemicals. 
Yeah, so first of all, I'll go real quick because we have one minute, but uh, dopamine makes us feel good. Everything that happens in our lives that feels good happens because dopamine is released in the midbrain, and sexual relations cause dopamine release. But if you look at the different drugs, crystal methamphetamine releases 900 times more dopamine in your midbrain than sex does. Opiates release 400 times more dopamine in your midbrain than sex does, and alcohol releases about 90 to 100 times more dopamine in your midbrain than sex does. There's individual differences in people's midbrains, and I think for some people those numbers are different. Like for the opiate people that get hooked on opiates, it might be more than 400, um, and for people that and maybe crystal meth is less than 900 in those people, but those are kind of averages of the amount of dopamine released in the midbrain. That's powerful to me because if I'm a listener and I'm listening to this, I can, no wonder why people get addicted to it, right? Right, right there. Thank you for that. Join us in episode uh, 17, part two, coming up after the short little 30 second break. Thank you. You are listening to We Do Recover with Jared Miller and co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. We'll be right back after this short break with more of We Do Recover with Jared Miller, sponsored by Steps Recovery Center and the Hilton Garden Inn. I'm Desmond Lomax, one of the clinical executives here at Steps Recovery, and once you become of the Steps family, you're just a part of the Steps family. A lot of us have overcome substances, overcome addiction, and now we're able to help other people. Second of all, we're also going to help you in a way where you can afford to be helped. Third of all, we're going to give you the same quality that many organizations are charging two to three times. And it's more about you than it is about our organization. We welcome you back to We Do Recover with Jared Miller, co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. And now with part two of our podcast, Jared Miller and Dr. Terry Sellers. Welcome back to episode 17 of We Do Recover. We have a, a special guest here for you guys today, Chalee Webb. She's discussing the theories of addiction with me and Dr. Sellers. Uh, we're going to jump back into that in a minute. Episode 17, part two is brought to you by Hilton Garden Inn, St. George. It's always sunny and bright at the Hilton Garden Inn. If you're traveling through Southern Utah, give them a Google search. Just type in Hilton Garden Inn, St. George, Utah. Promise you won't regret it. They have amazing amenities, top of the line service. All right. Good to me. They, they are amazing. They, they truly are. Dr. Sellers, we had a caller. You want to take this medical question? Yeah. Then we'll get to it. Yeah. Hit me with a question. Okay. Hi, this is Abby from Salt Lake City, and I'm calling to ask about MAT. With MAT clinics becoming more popular, what is your opinion on MAT clinics compared to traditional inpatient treatment centers? Thank you. Thank you. It's a great question. Thank you. So, it's a loaded for our question. listeners who do not totally understand what she was talking about, MAT stands for medication assisted treatment. So, there's a couple of uh, things that I want to unpack there, and that is, uh, first of all, medically assisted treatment. I think is a decent name for this. It's, it's so um, it's not just the medication that is treatment, right? Because we are dealing with a biopsychosocial disease, and if all you so Matt, which is the medication part of it, um, well, the M, which is the medication part of it. All that addresses is the biological components, right? And if you ignore the psychological and social components of addiction, 
then that's not really complete treatment. Throwing a pill or a medication or a shot or whatever it is at somebody and calling that treatment is not true. It's not treatment at all. That's you've kind of treated the symptoms, but you have ignored the disease itself. So we got to take care of the psychological and social components. So everybody has known this for a long time, and that is that you can't just give out. So traditionally, MAT includes medications like Suboxone and anything with buprenorphine in it. And uh, now they have Sublocade, which is a, a really cool new preparation of Suboxone or uh, buprenorphine. Vivitrol is included in MAT. Um, methadone is included in MAT. And if all you do is that, Vivitrol, methadone, suboxone, if all if that's all you do, that's not treatment. That's you've ignored two-thirds of the disease process. I have found in my experience sometimes that MAT clinics don't include treating the biological I mean the psychological and social components of the disease. And I think that's really, really critical. Just throwing something at the symptoms is not gonna work. I remember reading a um, there's a book called The Soul of Recovery, and there was a quote in there that I actually uh, – that I loved, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't remember it completely. But it said, listen, if there's ever a magical pill found that that will stop addiction – and this, was, this book was written long before Suboxone. Um, if there's ever a magical pill found that cures addiction, then what we will have is uh, addicts who are basically hooked on that pill – who are walking around like zombies because you have now taken away their symptoms, but you have not, they have not worked hard enough or used enough sort of willpower. Willpower is not the word, but I can't remember how it went. But anyway, they will not have cleaned house enough to treat the other parts of addiction. And I think that's where occasionally mat clinics can fail, but not all of them. If a MAC clinic is willing to provide psychosocial support and treatment, then MAC clinics are every bit as good as traditional treatment as long as they're not ignoring that psychological and social components. I talked way too long. Sorry. No, that was great. I thought that was really good information. Thank you. And that actually rolls us right into our next two theories. So that, that's perfect. All right. Let's jump into uh, the social cultural theory. So the information I got on that in my little research was Albert Bambura. He published Social Learning Theories in 1977, suggesting that cognitive, genetic, and social cultural factors expose individuals to experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Basically, in layman's terms, their environment, right? Media, the things that they watch, the things they listen to. Uh, a big component of that is family. Like, what, what does their family support look like? And I got a, a quick little story. I, before... I became um, an addict in recovery. I was a teacher and a coach and I worked and I, I was a physical education, physical education teacher and a health teacher out in Arizona. And when I started in my health class, born and raised here in Utah, it was a cultural shock. Mm -hmm. It was a social cultural shock because as I start talking about, you know, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't smoke. I was talking to a lot of kids that their parents had these problems. And so I, I actually was pulled aside by my administrator and said, hey, you got to kind of be careful the way you're addressing this because we're hearing reports that, you know, some of these families are a little uncomfortable with, with 
the curriculum you're, you're teaching. And it dawned on me like that's their, that's, that's the environment that they're raised in. And that's what we're talking about with social culture. Yeah. Cultural is a, a big factor in addiction and recovery as well. And that's one of the things that I have to look at and help people address. And a lot of times they don't even realize that cultural can play a huge part in why they were doing what they did, why they normalized some of the things that they normalized. Because if you think about society as a whole, we typically rotate, I mean, Thanksgiving's coming up, right? We rotate our lives around food and alcohol and social gatherings. And so if you don't address the cultural aspect of addiction, you're missing, it's almost like um, when Dr. Sellers was just talking about Matt, you're missing part of the link of that because we are social creatures and culture plays a huge part of it for us, no matter what culture you are a part of. And most of us are, are part of several cultures. So if you don't look at it and address it, you're going to miss some of it and miss some of the problems that they individually face. Yeah, that's a great point. Dr. Sellers, when you attended BYU, did you do join any fraternities that socially, uh, you know, suggested that you drink until you pass out to get into those fraternities? Uh, no. <laughs> Turns out BYU doesn't have any fraternities. So, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, they don't allow that. But uh, if they if they did allow it, they wouldn't allow one that required you to drink until you pass out. I was just using that as an example of a social cultural. <laughs> well, in Utah, part of that is the LDS culture, and and a lot of times for addicts, it's one of those things that we really have to look at because we want them to gravitate towards a higher power. And most of them have a really big struggle breaking apart the religion with spirituality. And mm -hmm. so looking at a culture, um, a lot of times they don't even address that as a culture. Great point. Yeah, that's a good point. Really is. Dr. So Sellers. Can I throw a comment out? Please. Yeah. Real quick. So one of the more elegant ways that this has been studied in the literature is where they take, and there are multiple studies like this in the, in the addiction literature of where they take identical twins who get separated shortly after birth. Mm -hmm. For example, um, uh, identical twins who get adopted, right? But they don't get both adopted by the same family. So they grow up in different uh, sort of environments, right? But the, but genetically, they're exactly the same. And and what they have shown through those studies, there's a bunch of stuff that comes out of those studies, but one of the things they have shown is that the twin that is raised in a family where alcohol is abundant and, you know, every single uh, celebration and stuff drinks alcohol, and let's say the other twin was adopted by some strict Mormon family. This is not in the literature, but uh, you know what I'm saying. Like a, they're adopted into an environment where alcohol is kind of forbidden or the the twin that gets adopted into the environment where there's more alcohol has a greater likelihood of becoming someone who struggles with alcohol. So these are, I mean, those studies, there's a bunch of stuff like that, but those studies are super elegant and super, you know, that you can't draw from a group of millions of identical twins adopted at birth, but man, they found series of like 30 and 40 uh, identical twins adopted at birth. And it, the studies are really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. There's a, a cheesy little thing that I read or heard somewhere one time that said, 
show me your five closest friends and I'll show you like your projection in life. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's for a substance abuse disorder, AKA addiction, or whether it's for just about anything socially, those influences have a huge effect on us. Huge effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you with kids, you know that you're, you have a great effect on your children up until about the age of 12, maybe. And then after that, their friends are way more important than their parents are in shaping their, their future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like my kids stopped listening to me about age 12, maybe 13, something like that. And it's not that they didn't listen at all, but I just wasn't the same influence that I was before they were 12. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. All right, let's jump into uh, the the last one I got here. So cognitive behavioral uh, theory. So basically the research, because I tried to find back as far back as I could find stuff. Albert Ellis in the 1950s developed REBT, which is, uh, stands for rational. rational. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Rational emotive behavioral theory. Yes. Thank you. And that one. There's some, yeah, there's some studies out there and people that, that believe in that one. The one that I really, really love is the one by uh, Aaron T. Beck. In the 1960s, he developed CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. I actually started uh, a group called changes based on this. It's a 12 step group and we meet at USARA and it's based on, you know, the cognitive changing the way challenging and changing the way that you think. We read a book and a chapter from a self-help book and we discuss how it applies in our life. And because to me, this was the biggest one for me. Right. When I, I don't mean to make this about me because it's about theories, but when I had some clean time from jail, I realized that I had a, a problem. I thought differently. Like I was, and so through treatment, I was able to start to learn some of those things. And man, I became hooked. I, I like wanted to figure out, it was like a, a personal study of myself. Why do I think this way? Why do I do these things? So this one, obviously you can tell by my excitement is, is my favorite. Um, people learn through observation that addictive substances can help cope. They can help with stress. They can help with depression. They can help with anxiety. Some of our guests have shared that they just help relaxation, make you more social, more sociable. Uh, they can, you can escape from physical pain as well as emotional, mental health, mental pain. Um, and then the biggest bullet point that I, I took on this is people who find relief or a pleasurable experience are more likely to engage in that behavior again. And that's, that is so true how maybe young Johnny experiments. Well, I don't have to use young Johnny. We had Taz Decker come on and talk about his experience with, you know, he tried alcohol. He didn't have any negative reinforcement or any negative consequences from it. It was a pleasurable experience. And so therefore it, the ball started rolling, right? He did it again. All right. So cognitive behavioral therapy is actually something that we I get to use on a daily basis. I get to help people like challenge the thoughts that they have. Most of us have core beliefs. We have core distortions. There's 13 major core distortions that they've kind of gone to look at universally that most of us have. And so every day I get to look, help people challenge that belief help them look at why they were thinking the way they were thinking, why it became um, their go-to, and maybe even challenge the negative 
cognitive beliefs that they have. Um, one of my favorite things to do um, with clients is tell them, you know, cognition is all about your thinking and megacognition. What do you think megacognition is? Sellers, help me out here because I have no idea. <laughs> uh, listen, you're above my head too. Mega, oh. mega cognition is you're thinking about your thinking. And thinking about your thinking is what uh, addicts do a lot. You, you ruminate on all of the decisions you've made in the past, what you're going to think about for the future, how you're going to get out of some of the problems that you have. And a lot of it is putting it aside so you don't think about it, right? So as an, an addict. We call that getting out of our head. Is yes, that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so cognitive behavioral therapy is a way for us to uncover what we, what we wanted to keep hidden, discover why we did the things we did and discard some of the things that we don't want to have recur in our life anymore. So um, CBT is amazing when it comes to addiction. And, and in my belief, I mean, everything in life we could look at at a CBT point because we go along through life thinking about a lot of misconceptions that we learned from different ages ages. I mean, if we talk about Erickson and the stages of development for a moment, which is another theory, like we get stuck at a certain age point and that's where our cognitive ability gets stunted. And then we have that misconception and we continue that misconception forward and it continues to plague us. And so as we as we challenge our beliefs and we challenge what we're doing in addiction, we can challenge those thoughts and where they came from. And sometimes we, we know that they, they're still a part of us and still important for us, but most often we can challenge it and change it. Not saying it's easy because it's not. It's one of the most difficult parts of recovery is challenging those beliefs and changing them in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So are you saying that that's why I'm like a, a big little kid because yes. I started using around like 18, 20 early. To, so I like, I'm stuck mentally in my twenties. So what, <laughs> so what happens is we get stuck in one of those ages of developments and actually it's a lot sooner than 18. Oh, okay. It's usually when we're really, really young, when we have that developmental belief that everything is about us. And maybe that happened for you at the age of 18, Eight, but I but, still think that way. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe you do. Maybe you were right. <laughs> but most of us get stuck in that developmental age when we're really, really young, where everything, we can't focus on anything other than it affecting us and we are the problem. And if we just eliminated that, then we would eliminate the problems that evolve. So that's kind of where it gets stuck. Harry Potter, Dumbledore. <laughs> that, that just blew my mind. I love that. That's Dr. Funny. Sellers, do you have any... Any takes on cognitive behavioral therapy or theory? Well, yeah, sort of the my kind of semi-layman take is all the time I hear um, people look at addiction and say, well, it just doesn't make any sense what these guys are doing. And yes, to the outside observer, what people are doing does not make sense, right? But what they don't understand, first of all, is that medical model mm -hmm. where the midbrain takes over. But recovery has got to make sense 
And this is sort of where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in, is trying to link some of the dots together and make all of those things make sense to people so that they can make logical, reasonable decisions in the future. So um, don't talk to people in active addiction about logic because they, they can't do it. But if you get somebody away from the, the medication or the drugs or the alcohol that's causing their lack of logic, then you can start using CBT to sort of make changes. It's a great therapy for a number of mental health conditions that aren't amenable to uh, to like medical treatment. Things like borderline personality disorder do not respond to medications at all, but they do respond to things like CBT. So it's beautiful. Yep, CBT and DBT for yeah borderline. That's the yeah. amazing ones. That's awesome. So I can't really talk on that because I'm not on your guys' level as far as my experience is uh, in treatment, right? So there was, when I was in treatment, I just got to tell this story because all therapists are different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's a lot of therapists that are very sweet and very empathetic and, and th- that works for some people. My therapist, he knew what I needed. And one time I shared, I said, man, I've lost everything in addiction. And yeah, they called him the ice man. I won't say his name, but he, he straight up called me out and he said, you've lost everything. Really? You're breathing. You're alive. You still have family. You still, you still have clothes. Right. So, uh, yeah. And, and as far as like the thinking errors that you learn with CBT, like, I think that that's good for people that have never even had an addiction Absolutely. because you learn a lot of like all or nothing thinking, uh, I, forget the exact thing, but basically grandstanding or grandiose, um, overgeneralizing everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's some real powerful stuff in there that I I remember, obviously I've forgotten it now. It's been a a while, but I tried memorizing all of them. And then at night I would journal and I would think, okay, in this situation, I made this thinking error. Mm -hmm. Because again, I realized I was broken and I just needed to figure out how to fix myself. CBT was amazing for me. Another big one for me Dr. Sellers, did you ever get the assignment King Baby? <laughs> no. I've given that one out a lot. Have you? <laughs> What's that, Dr. Sellers? Yeah. Have you have you gotten the assignment King Baby? Nothing. nothing. No? <laughs> I have not, but I know of the assignment, I said. So explain to the listeners, because that one was super impactful for me. So King Baby, there's actually King Baby and Queen Baby. So depending on your gender um, or where you where you identify, um, it, it talks about, you know, your ability to look at the ego part of who you are. And a lot of times we don't like to look at that ego part. We, we feel like we're so much more important than we are. Um, and that's, that's actually a big part of addiction in, and how we stayed alive, believe it or not, is that King baby and queen baby portion of us that helped us actually survive some of the things that we went through and, and participated in. If we didn't have that ego, we wouldn't have been alive. So it's actually a good thing in some ways, but we get to challenge that belief and kind of strip that embellishment back a layer or two. I'm going to be King baby and share another experience real quick. This was very impactful for me. I remember one conversation I had with my mom in particular where I hadn't called her, right? I didn't have money on my books, whatever. I'm in jail and I'm going to treatment, the MRC program. And I call her and I'm talking to her. And this is the first time I'm trying, I'm, I'm have the intention of making amends with my mom. 
And so we're on this phone call and, and she says me something that completely blew me away. And it was when I was working on this assignment, she said, Jared, I said, mom, how you been? She said, I've been great. I said, okay. And she said, for the first time in a long time, I can sleep at night. And I said, mom, I'm in jail. This place isn't fun. This is terrible. It was a bad experience thinking of me. And she said, no, 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 but I know you're safe. <laughs> I know you're not going to overdose somewhere. I know you're not getting beat up. I know that you're off the streets. And man, when I, it hit me to my core for the first time in a long time, my mom's able to sleep mm -hmm. knowing that I'm in jail. Yeah. And that's when it, and it's a slow process. I'm still working on it, but I started realizing not everything right. It's just about around you. me and my substance abuse. What? Disorder. What? All right. Hey, I got to, can I interrupt for, I know we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, let's in an attempt to make this podcast more live and more interactive on Facebook, we have a question from a listener. Now, his name is Christian Smith. He's a good friend of mine, and we're going to have Christian on this show eventually. But he asked on Facebook just now, where does genetic predisposition fit into all of this? And I just kind of wanted to address that question real quick. So that is, or real quickly, if I'm going to speak proper English, uh, that is uh, partly account well mostly accounted for in the medical model and particularly those studies of identical twins what mostly came out of those studies of identical twins is regardless of what environment they're raised in they actually act a lot alike more so than their environments they act the same if one's raised in a very liberal uh, sort of, uh, I don't mean liberal in, as far as uh, political philosophies, but liberal in the use of alcohol in celebrations and all that, and the other is raised in a strictly no alcohol environment, the twins actually act more like each other than they do their environments. And so that partly goes to that genetic predisposition. Yeah, that's awesome. If you guys have any questions like that as you're watching this live on Facebook, please call in a question to the, the question line. That's 801-410-0676, and we can get it the next week and have Dr. Sellers address those. Again, that's 801-410-0676. Thank you. We, can we all agree that not one of these is singular, right? That it's a mix of everything, and that's what I kind of wanted to close on this is it's a little bit of each one of these. We meet people sure. where they're at. Yeah, and, I love that. and they have to, we have to be able to have enough theories to be able to do that because we're not going to reach everybody with the medical model Great or point. any of the others. Thank you so much for coming on today. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Sellers. Thank you. See you guys next week. Thank you for joining us today on We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Help us spread our message of hope. Like, comment, and share. If you have any topics or ideas for future shows, please share that on our Facebook page. That Facebook page is We Do Recover with Jared Miller. If you or a loved one needs help, please reach out to us. Again, thank you for listening. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. This has been a production from... A podcast studio.